0: Hello, my name's James Bagley
1: and I'm Lucy Chaw
0: and this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. So welcome back to the podcast. I'd like to welcome new listeners. I've been told reliably that we have lots of new listeners from here in the UK and around the world after the Fantastic episode with Professor Anand Menon on Brexit. Anand's celebrity has meant that more people have listened to the podcast than ever before. Please do rate and review us. It really helps us reach new people. For those joining us for the first time, the world we got this podcast from Kings is all about looking at challenges, be they political, economic, social or scientific Each week we talk to a guest expert or writer or activist about a issue and try to unpack it a little bit and also look at ways it can be solved. Now, up to this point, we've had lots of academics on, which is fantastic. And we're going to continue to do that. But we're also going to be inviting on writers, thinkers and activists in the coming weeks to talk about some of the issues that we're trying to understand. And I guess that brings me to this week and our guest Lucy, do you want to tell us a little bit more about today's guest?
1: Yes. So this week, James had the opportunity to speak to Isabel Hardman. Isabel is a political journalist, but also a writer who has just released a new book called The Natural Health Service, uh, which deals with her experiences of mental health and the impact that getting outdoors has had on her recovery.
0: Yeah, and it was a fascinating discussion. The book, which I read in preparation for the podcast, is a fantastic read. I found myself thinking about the various different tips that Isabel had talked about. And as and she makes clear, some of them will work, some of them won't work for, for individuals, but she she also linked them to the research, including research here at King's. Um, and discuss the ways in which we're trying to understand how nature how activities like running swimming cycling can help support our mental health Um, they're not always the sole solution uh, but they can be a great support and the book did leave me and this conversation did leave me thinking more about the many ways we can use nature on a daily basis to help us keep us well and kind of maintain our well-being I guess
1: Yes, I didn't think that I needed any more convincing that it was essential to get outside and um, to be active for my own mental well-being. But I think that Isabel just reiterated how it is uh, such an essential activity for every human being and how it's something that is really within easy reach for each one of us. Um, It's not necessary, as she said, to take up an expensive hobby like horse riding, but in places like Westminster even um, it's possible to catch glimpses of nature and to notice things which are really very beneficial to our mental well-being.
0: Yeah, and I should say that this podcast is all about tackling challenges, be they political, economic, social, scientific, However, one of the challenges I face is to remember to turn on the right mic when we're recording this podcast. Um, Unfortunately, in this case, I didn't. And so it is recorded from my side, at least using my AirPods, hence the slight drop in sound quality. However, Isabel is a professional and made sure that she used a good quality mic. And so she comes through loud and clear. And I think that's the main thing. Um, apologies to our editor, uh, Rachel, who does a fantastic job uh, dealing with my lack of ability to turn my mic properly on. I should also just mention that this episode is the first in two episodes that we're doing with the Centre for Society and Mental Health. The Centre helps look at mental health, its impacts on society, but also how society shapes our mental health. Uh, We're going to be talking to colleagues from the Centre next week, about various different pieces of research and I please do urge you to to tune in to the next episode um, for that discussion. We're going to be sharing lots of uh, information in the show notes and please do follow and subscribe to the various things on their website. So it just leaves me to introduce today's episode. This is the Natural Health Service with Isabel Hardman. Today's guest is Isabel Hardman Isabel is assistant editor of The Spectator magazine and a regular contributor to a number of other publications, including The Times, Sunday Times, Observer and London's own Evening Standard. She's also a regular guest on programmes such as The Andrew Marr Show, Newsnight and Question Time. Isabel's first book, Why We Got the Wrong Politicians, came out in 2018, but it's her most recent book entitled The Natural Health Service, which explores benefits to our mental and physical well-being of spending time in nature and that's the book that shapes today's conversation. Isabel, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: And I should say we're in lockdown free. How how are you finding it? Are you, you you've got you've got a newborn, which is probably uh, the biggest challenge of lockdown.
2: Yes, although I think probably one of the things about early motherhood is that you are kind of in lockdown anyway. So my experience of the pandemic has been a little bit different to to a lot of other people's and. Um, I've been belatedly getting used to Mm -hmm. Zoom and all the other technological problems that everyone else had earlier in the year. As I come back from maternity leave and everyone else is a pro while I'm still sort of fiddling with my camera and realising that my dogs are in the backdrop and all that kind of thing. So um, if I'm honest, it's been okay for me. I I don't want to complain. I haven't lost anyone close to me. I'd love to see the people I love a little bit more. But in comparison to, to what a lot of people are going through, I've been okay.
0: Yeah, I guess it can feel like the novelty's worn off this time around, but the novelty's t- still new for you. So maybe that's, that'll get you through the next few months at least. So I should first of all say, I'm so glad we've got you on and we, that we've had a, a new book on the podcast because it's actually forced me to read and turn off my phone um, <laughs> as opposed to kind of constantly checking emails. And I'm so pleased I did because, as I mentioned in an email to you, it, the book left me kind of changing my own behaviour and thinking about things that I did in my on my daily walks. And I want to start by really discussing the book is slightly different to, to other books on mental health in that it contains elements of your own story, the experience of others, as well as evidence from research, uh, including colleagues at King's. But I wanted to start at the beginning, really, and, and kind of what led you to write the book and where this began.
2: Yeah, so I, I guess it's, it's not a book I ever imagined writing. I'm a political journalist by trade and that's that's what i've always sort of wanted to write about as you say my first book was why we get the wrong politicians and um, i'm now working on my third book which is a history of the nhs which is you know going back to public policy and politics and so i would never expected firstly to get a mental illness um i'd never expected to to be in a place where i'd want to write about that but um but really my experience of Uh, falling ill in 2016, being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and learning to manage that, learning to live with it, uh, learning to recover from some of the symptoms actually was something that really opened my eyes to the power of nature and I really started to think that what I'd learnt as I'd learnt to manage my illness was something that a lot of other people could benefit from. And beyond that was something that public policymakers should be paying attention to that actually could make a big difference to the way the NHS treats mental illness and the way that we as a society approach our mental health more generally.
0: And you, you mentioned that you obviously in the book you talk about as early days you're receiving treatment from the NHS and then you begin to kind of discover these these elements of nature that, that are perhaps supporting your well-being or, or healing. Was that something that came out of the blue? Was it a slow process? And did it reignite dormant things that you'd, you'd had as a child, maybe love of love of nature?
2: Yes, it did. And for me, I grew up in the country, and I've always been an outdoor person. I've always felt happiest while gardening. Uh, I'd been a runner for quite a few years before I got ill. So I already knew the benefits to my general mental well-being of going for a run, just the, the way in which it helped me to Thought through all of my thoughts at the end of a a stressful day, the way it made me feel stronger and better able to cope with busy days. And so when I did get sick, I I was aware of these experiences and and of the importance of the natural world. But I hadn't really put two and two together until my GP, who first saw me after I had my breakdown in 2016, said that she wanted me to get out of the house every single day and do something outdoors. And she asked me what activities I liked. And I said, well, I like going running. Um, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of horse riding. And she said, well, look, book as much of that kind of thing as you can afford so that you're not sitting at home basically festering. And so I did, I, I did have savings at, at the time. I've since spent them basically on being ill. But um, I spent my savings on getting a personal trainer who came twice a week to make me go for a run with her, and ongoing uh, horse riding twice a week. And I'm aware, as I say this, that those activities are prohibitively expensive for most people. And the book really isn't about how you should, you know, spend all of your money that you don't have on activities. It's really actually about free activities or about how the health service is now doing social prescribing so that people are going for free or low cost or subsidised activities to help with their mental illnesses. Um, but these things did really help me they gave me a structure to my day which is important but more than that they got me outside and they helped me to work through the symptoms of my illness some of the bad thoughts I was having and they gave me a focus and in a very very simple way they gave me reason to stay alive and I know that sounds strange when I also have a wonderful family wonderful friends lovely career, lots of big reasons to stay alive. And I'm incredibly grateful for those things. But when you're very ill, when you're very depressed, those things can seem like something you don't deserve. They can seem like people you're letting down, felt that my career was something that I'd sort of happened upon accidentally and that I didn't deserve to be anywhere near. And so there's something about nature which is indifferent to you. You know, trees have been there for far longer than you have and they will outlive you an oak tree will live for 500 years and they don't need you they don't need you to perform to entertain them to turn up on time or anything and that the strong beauty of an oak tree was something that I kept coming back to when I was sick um the, the quiet help of a horse was another thing animals in the natural world don't have the same connotations the same burdens as, as friends and family and so when I was very, very sick and struggling a lot with suicidal thoughts, the simplicity of the great outdoors was a real lifeline, and it still is now. my mental health is is currently in a very good place, but this morning I made sure before I started work that I went for a walk because I knew that I'd have a clearer mind, feel better about the world and about myself
0: if I got outdoors I mean I urge the listeners to go read the book and find out all the tips but i I did mention. Uh, before the podcast we started recording it there were lots in there that were really helpful and i'm sure to those that are suffering mental health conditions but also those that perhaps have anxieties and issues around particularly this time when when we're in lockdown and i know people might be struggling Um, and as you mentioned that that taking time however a small amount of time just to interact with the outside world really struck me I mean you certainly stress that it's something that actually although we think often if we're in a big city or in a suburb there are aspects of nature everywhere and you talk about that in your book and finding those even even in Westminster yes
2: when I returned to work I obviously couldn't go horse riding during the day or go for long walks but Even in Westminster, which I think most people would think of as being filled with that wonderful Portland stone that's used to build the the buildings in Whitehall and the wonderful neo-Gothic architecture of the Palace of Westminster. You don't really think about nature in amongst all of that. But there is nature everywhere and it's not just pigeons and crows. I mean, actually in the Houses of Parliament, there's a peregrine falcon which flies around um, and nests, has been nesting in recent years as well. But I would go out in my lunch break, and notice plants growing through the cracks in the pavements. I'd pay a great deal more attention to trees in the streets. And one of the things I noticed during uh, the first lockdown was I was encouraging people to look out of their windows, particularly if they were shielding, and just notice the trees that were outside their homes. And one chap got back to me and said, well, this is quite amazing because I thought when I read your tweet, that's a shame because I don't have any trees outside of my house. And then I looked out of the window and realised there was one and that I'd just been missing it for however long he'd been living in that place. So it's very easy for us to switch off our our senses, not just our sight, but our uh, appreciation of the sounds and scents and textures of the outside world. I would often rest my hand against the bark of a tree because there's something about touch which helps to ground you and helps to take you out of your mind which is a, you know, it's a horrible feeling being at war with your own mind, not feeling as though you're at home in your own thoughts, because they're just going off on some paranoid delusion or some anxious uh, build up to a panic attack. To actually remind yourself of what's happening in reality, which is that you're standing by a massive plane tree with your hand on its trunk. That's so powerful when you're when you're not well, it doesn't cure you but it does help you manage those symptoms. And uh, something that I found really dispiriting when I first started to try to to manage the the difficult thoughts I was having was I tried to do mindfulness and I would sit in a room and it felt like I was opening the door to all the thoughts I'd kept at bay all day. And there they were shouting at me because, because I was sitting in silence. But when I started trying to do mindful activities outdoors, like I said, resting my hand against the trunk of a tree or just noticing the sounds of the the raindrops dropping from one leaf to another, I started to understand what mindfulness is really about. And that's about understanding what's really happening in the present moment. And being able to acknowledge the thoughts in your head that come and go, but not obsessing about them. For me, nature allowed me to do that. Sitting in a a dead room was not helpful at all. Being outdoors was what did it for me.
0: Yeah, I, I last few days since reading the book, I've dumped, dumped my headphones from the usual constant podcast listening and on audiobooks to, to try and engage a little bit more. And I, I highly recommend it. W- one thing I wanted to, to to ask you about, I mean, what comes through is you, you mentioned the feeling of bark and, and feeling nature and, and interacting with it. You do mention quite a lot your kind of suspicion of the kind of new agey way that sometimes people talk about nature or and how it can heal mental health or physical health. But this healthy suspicion, do you think in some ways it, it led you to be more beneficial? You had a kind of suspicion of it, but then as you discovered various different elements, you found what worked.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you say, I, I am a bit suspicious of the kind of the, the sort of new age language around this sort of thing. And and also just generally of, of claims which have absolutely no evidence, because I think something might work for me, but for me to write an entire book on that basis is quite irresponsible because it it may actually really hinder somebody else. And you do come across accounts from from quite well-known writers who say, you know, this is how I beat depression and I didn't take any antidepressants or anything like that. And I was very, very wary of that because, you know, the, all the clinical research suggests that antidepressants do have a positive impact for people with with moderate depression. Um, I actually don't have depression. I have PTSD. So, so for me to start advising people on every sort of mental illness um, would have been really irresponsible without talking to clinicians and without looking at what uh, robust research there is and I should say that the, the research on mental health generally is pretty paltry compared to um, physical illnesses but it was really important to me to to go back to the original research and to make sure that this was a book not just about anecdote and what worked for me but also what works in a in an evidence-based clinical setting and uh, that really cheered me up because it wasn't just a hunch it wasn't just you know that actually I'd been brought up in the country and therefore uh, the thing that made me happy was being outdoors it's that actually for people with with a whole range of mental illnesses contact with the outdoors in lots of different ways can make a difference to the symptoms of their illnesses and I I think some of the most powerful um, bits of the research for me were when I went to Bethlehem Royal Hospital and now. If you're admitted to Bethlehem, you are very, very sick. You're a severe risk to yourself or to other people. And Bethlehem have a, a lot of what they call forensic patients, which is the health services word for people who've been through the criminal justice system. You know, they've been they've been in prison in Broadmoor and other other prisons with a with a psychiatric element. And, and some of them have committed arson, some of them have committed other really serious crimes. And there's an emphasis throughout the the programs at Bethlehem on getting people outdoors, because the therapists, the psychologists, the psychiatrists there have seen the difference that engagement with the outdoors, whether it's going for walks in the beautiful grounds of that psychiatric hospital, whether it's doing gardening, whether it's running. They've recently set up a park run there in the grounds. The difference that those activities can make to the more traditional treatments of medication, of, of therapy and so on. Is huge. There was um, one therapist who I was talking to who said that a client who had been very withdrawn at the start of his gardening sessions had come back to her and said, Actually, this has made a huge difference to me and it's helping me to engage better with my therapy. Now, you can't really argue with that in, in a setting where the illnesses are as severe as the ones that are being treated in Bethlehem Royal Hospital and other psychiatric settings. So that was very cheering from my perspective, but it was also very powerful.
0: Yeah, uh, as you say, having more and more research on these areas, I mean, as you mentioned, the, getting, getting parity in terms of both research and treatment, mental health is so important. And us understanding more about uh, the way nature can help is going to be so key to, to making the cakes, as we'll come on to discuss perhaps, um, to policymakers. Um, well, one thing you mentioned there, you mentioned running um, an exercise and an interaction with nature via activity. I guess I should say beforehand, and you make clear in the book, as with nature, this isn't a cure. And, and one thing you stress is it's not, you know, people telling people with mental health issues that they need to just get up and, and, and go running or, or get up and go out the house, because that can often be detrimental. It's, it's about supporting and aiding their recovery. But running was a big thing for you and certainly helped. And you speak to many people along the way that have also taken up various activities that take them outdoors to help in their mental health recovery.
2: Yeah, lots of people were really, really generous. Um, in talking to me about their illnesses, and I was particularly struck by a chap called Wayne Singleton, who who is a running coach, but also has mental illness of his own, which he finds running really helps with and he was really determined not just to speak to me but to be named and, and on record in the book I offered all of my interviewees complete anonymity if they wanted there's there's various names that I came up with to, to protect their identities and uh, we had a bit of back and forth with some of the interviewees about whether they wanted to be called this name or that name or whether one name sounded a bit outlandish and so on but um but Wayne was very clear that he wanted to be Wayne Singleton in the book, because he wanted to help other men in particular um, who were struggling. And uh, I, I, was really, um, I was really moved by that. And he's a, um, he's a running coach up in Cumbria, where I spend a lot of time. And he was saying that anyone can run. He doesn't doubt that anyone can run. And I'm, I should say that I'm, I'm a very bad runner. I'm not very fast. I've had my technique analysed and it's terrible. Um, and i'm never going to be able to crack out a sub 21 minute park run or anything like that but i love it and it makes such a difference to me wayne says that that you know that's the anyone can run but not everyone enjoys it and there's no point in saying to someone you know if you go running you'll get better if you go running you'll get better if they just hate running and he said you'll get miserable with exercise and then you won't do it so find something else and i hope that message comes across quite clearly in the book that it's not a kind of right, get up, sort yourself out, come on, you know, this is mental health boot camp. Actually, if you're trying to support somebody who is mentally ill, the worst thing you can do is start lecturing them about what they should be doing. Because they they may actually benefit much more from having a sleep. But I can tell you that they what they will definitely benefit more from is someone being there for them, someone listening to them, and someone saying, what do you think might help you, rather than reeling off a list of things and I would be mortified if anyone used my book to say, oh, but Isabel Hardman says you've got to go cold water swimming and then you'll be better. <laughs> that's certainly not. That's certainly not the message. But I, I hope it gives people some inspiration and ideas about what they might be able to try to see whether that helps and what they might be able to talk to their doctor about getting a social prescription for.
0: You mentioned wild swimming. I'm being a bit indulgent here because I actually I love swimming. I'm really missing swimming because of lockdown. And I, everyone in, I feel like everyone mentions about wild swimming at the moment. It's the thing that can heal all ills, but it was really useful to you. And, and you, you did some of it both in Cumbria and and in the Serpentine, even under the ice, as it were, hacking the ice open.
2: Yeah, it's funny. It is really enjoying a moment. To, to yeah. the, but it's a bit embarrassing admitting that you are into cold water swimming because it makes you feel, even though, you know, I, I was there before it became trendy, just to point out, but it <laughs> you feel like you're this massive cliche and just to add to the cliche I have one of those big warm coats that you can change in called a dry robe which now have a massive sort of middle-class stigma attached to them because everyone I know has been posting on Facebook during lockdown saying check out my dry robe like it's a fashion accessory and it's just it's really embarrassing Um, but beneath all of the kind of you know middle-class people buying expensive kits and everyone copping onto a hobby that's you know suddenly very trendy i think it's an incredibly powerful intervention and the res- the research that's been done by dr mark harper on this in particular is really compelling. And there's a real impetus, I think, for for more research into the impact it has on your fight or flight instinct, which goes awry in so many mental illnesses, you end up being very frightened or very angry in what appears to be a very rational way. And that was certainly the case for me. And swimming in very cold water, as you say, Uh, with the ice on the water in the serpentine, it basically helps you to control that moment of fright that you have uh, when you get into cold water, but also when you're in a setting where you feel very uncomfortable and with mental health problems, that that can be a a range of settings. For me, it was things like supermarkets or conversations that just touched on topics that the other person who I was speaking to was totally unaware actually sent me off into a very bad place. Cold water swimming has, has made a huge difference to my ability to control that. And I think one of the reasons it has become so popular recently is that a lot of people are very keen on improving their mental well-being, whether or not they have a mental illness. And my hope is that with the popularity of cold water swimming, a number of things will change. One is that we will have much better access to clean, safe water to swim in, because at the moment, all the London swimming spots are certainly completely oversubscribed. I mean, they're closed, obviously, at the moment because it's lockdown three. But, um, but the Serpentine has closed its membership list. There's a queuing system at the Hampstead Ponds, for instance. And um, I, I wouldn't go to Hampstead in the summer anymore because it's just far too busy. It just becomes a bit oppressive. And it's a shame that we don't have more swimming spots. So in Germany, for instance, there are cities where you can swim in the river in the middle of the city. Now, no one's suggesting that you're going to suddenly turn the Thames, which is a a shipping channel in large parts, into a sort of open water venue. But further upstream, so from Richmond Lock onwards, the Thames is potentially a great river to swim in. And a lot of people, myself included, do swim there. But the water quality isn't great. And I have to follow a Twitter account called Thames Poo, which alerts me to when the local sewage works is discharging (laughs) it's overflow water into the river and that's not right I mean that that's not right for the health of the river more generally but for such a, a populous city for our river water not to be clean enough to swim in I hope that the sudden rise in popularity of outdoor swimming will change that not just in London but in, in other cities and towns around the country where we've basically been abusing our rivers rather than using them and seeing them as part of our everyday lives I also hope that the rise in popularity in outdoor swimming will lead to better and more extensive research um, along the lines of the work that Mark Harper has done already on the impact on mental health. Because I think it could become a really important intervention that doctors could prescribe to their patients to do. Uh, But I should say that it is also an extreme sport and anyone who's listening to it, please don't just go and dunk yourself in a lake or a river on your own. You have to acclimatise your body to it. You have to be aware of hidden dangers, current submerged objects. So do go with someone who knows what they're doing or when we're finally out of the latest restrictions, join a club, go to a a lifeguarded venue and get into it safely because you want to save your mental health. But frankly, you also don't want to drown.
0: Maybe try a cold Lido to start with. Go to kind of come on to some of the you, you end the book with some with a kind of setting out of some of the things that you feel kind of returning to your to what you're normally doing in your day job which is talking to politicians and um, some of the things that that politicians at a national and local level could do to make a change and support the idea of a natural health service But before I, I do that you, I did want to just kind of ask about how you feel As a journalist, the conversation about mental health has has kind of progressed, both in terms of talking about it, but also in terms of how we talk about solving the policy challenges.
2: I think that the stigma for depression and anxiety has almost gone. You will still find groups within the population where it's mocked um, and where it's difficult to talk about it. But by and large, people are generally pretty accepting of it and the media are generally pretty respectful of it. I think if you talk to anyone who's got a psychotic illness, though, they will say that the stigma really hasn't gone. So if you've got bipolar, schizophrenia and so on, that they still suffer huge amounts of stigma in wider society. So people attributing all sorts of things to their illnesses that they don't have, particularly actually with bipolar and schizophrenia, people still don't understand what those illnesses entail. And I've certainly experienced this, even though PTSD is, I'd say, a relatively user-friendly and understood illness. People are very happy for you to be depressed. They're less happy for you to be paranoid, angry and anything that basically goes beyond you being a bit sad. And so, you know, it's, it's okay to talk. People say it's good to talk. But actually, oh, God, not not about that kind of thing or it's not actually okay for you to be manifestly ill in a way that inconveniences others. And I think we still have a long way to go when it comes to anything beyond anxiety and depression. That's not to denigrate those illnesses at all. But I think if you're hearing voices or suffering severe mood swings, then well, the world can still feel pretty unfriendly and pretty lacking in understanding. I think in a healthcare context, there's still a lot of stigma around psychotic illnesses. Uh, people with schizophrenia still live 15 years less on average than the general population. And I, I thought when I heard that statistic that it was because these people were killing themselves. But actually, it's because of comorbidities around the medication that they're taking. So greater likelihood of being obese or having heart disease and so on. But also uh, of doctors missing other diagnoses because all they can see is the schizophrenia diagnosis and they don't realise that this person also has cancer or something like that. If you move into personality disorders, the stigma is very much there even amongst the people who treat people with personality disorders on a, on a day-to-day basis. I think I follow quite a few people who are either being treated for or who work with personality disorder patients. And they would say that that diagnosis really is the, the kiss of misery for someone. Because as soon as you hear the words personality disorder, a lot of healthcare professionals disengage. They start using terms like manipulative. These people are sick and they don't deserve to be treated with the derision and the hostility that that a lot of healthcare professionals uh, show towards those diagnoses.
0: And I guess coming on to talk about the manifesto or the ideas that, that policymakers could take up to try and enable this natural health service and support it, one of the things you mentioned in the book, and I think certainly has gone from being something that's not much discussed to actually being in public debate, which is around inequalities of health both in outcome and delivery. We know that's the case also for, for access often to community services, be it pools, gyms, often that are private. What are the key things do you think that government and perhaps even employee, employers could do to, to help support the natural health service?
2: Yeah, so in terms of government, I think a, a really important thing is designing our cities and our buildings and our schools and our lives around nature rather than trying to shut nature out recently um as you mentioned i my, my i gave birth to my to my first child my son jacob and he's a wonderful healthy bouncing boy but when he was first born that there were some concerns about him and he ended up in the intensive care unit of the hospital which is not an unusual experience for for a lot of new parents but it's it's terrifying and you don't know where that's going to take you and i remember going into the relatives room and it was a room without windows without any natural light at all. And I think I'm sure a lot of the relatives were were glad that there was a relative's room because there there often isn't in a hospital. But, But I thought this is probably the least helpful room I could possibly be sitting in while I'm trying to find out what on earth is wrong with my son. And it really came home to me, having already written and published this book, what a difference it would have made just to be able to look out the window at that moment. And so for hospitals to be designed... With natural views in mind, because we have research stretching back quite a few decades that shows that people recovering from physical surgery, so I think it was gallbladder surgery in the original study, were less likely to have complications, to need more pain relief, and got better quicker if they had a natural view from their hospital bed. Now, this is obviously quite difficult for a lot of hospitals that have already been built. And don't have a relative's room. And in the case of the intensive care unit at the hospital where my son was, the relative's room, I think, had genuinely been fashioned out of a cupboard. And they were very pleased that they'd managed to get anything at all. But just having that in mind when you're designing homes for the general population, but for social housing in particular, because people in social housing are more likely to have mental health problems, more likely to have challenges, which actually contact with the outdoors could help with and so not seeing nature as this optional extra for middle class people to enjoy at the weekends but actually as a vital part of our lives i think that's the most important thing and something that that i really hope that politicians will take on board and has become clearer i think during the pandemic as well the inequality of access to green spaces for people remember the debate uh, in the spring of last year when we were talking about the difference between most politicians who have back gardens And then a lot of people who are cooped up on the 10th floor of a tower block who could only go out for a walk once a day in the heatwave and how much harder it would have been for their mental health when they were being cooped up. I really hope we can keep that kind of debate alive rather than consigning it to part of the pandemic that we just want to forget.
0: Well, at least we'd say I would urge anyone to go buy and read a copy of the Natural Health Service. It really is a fantastic read. It's got so many tips we've mentioned some of them in today's podcast but there's many more uh, including orchids allotments and yes wild swimming and it just leaves me to say isabel hardman thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me you've been listening to the world we got this podcast from global affairs at king's college london this podcast was produced by james bagley and lucy willman with editing from rachel War.